Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Danesberg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Danesberg, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church, located in beautiful southeast Wisconsin. Spring is coming. (laughs) Winters are always challenging for me. And uh, it's always nice to see signs of a new season coming, new life. Flowers are not far off. Um, We are tackling the subject of abortion today. This podcast is all about Christian living in a complicated world. It obviously means that we'll talk about topics that are hot. Um, Last month, we kicked a hornet's nest in looking at the matters of gender. This month, abortion. Now, I know abortion is an emotional issue. It is um, a controversial issue. But it's not complicated. Um, it's, it's pretty simple. We've made it complicated, but it's a pretty simple, simple subject to address. The bottom line and, and the question that, that I want you to think through and wrestle with is this. Very simple question. What is the unborn? What is the unborn? If the unborn are human, the issue is settled. Abortion is killing humans. Now, I know the arguments get murky within this, and I'll reflect on some of those. But when talking with people about this, a key question I keep coming back to is just a very simple one. What is the unborn? Now, before we get into a defense of the, of the pro-life issue, I want to think for a moment about the biblical implications for this issue. Does the Bible say anything about this? So I want to begin by looking at biblical arguments for this, and then we'll look for uh, giving a defense of the, the pro-life position. Uh, let's, look at, let's consider some biblical arguments. First of all, pro-choice advocates often argue in favor of retaining abortion as a reasonable practice on the basis of the scripture's silence on the matter of abortion. Um, but, but, you know, a good Bible reading, argument based on silence, is, n- is not one you want to rest your case on, not solely, anyway. Um, Arguments based on silence are, are, can be dicey. I mean, think about it. Are there behaviors that we would say are wrong that the Bible doesn't say anything about? The, for example, the Bible is silent on the issue of using the justice system to punish those from the LGBTQ community. Would we say it's morally okay to issue the death sentence to someone from that community on the basis of their participation in the LGBTQ world? So, no, of course not. Just because the Bible doesn't expressly condemn something doesn't mean it automatically condones it. Bible reading 101. Just because the Bible doesn't expressly condemn something doesn't mean it automatically condones it. You've got to take a step back when you're looking at the Bible on this issue and ask a more fundamental question before you dive in. 
and, and that's this, who or what was the Bible written for? Remember, the Bible has a specific target audience, God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. It might be safe to conclude that while sexual immorality was a problem for God's people all throughout biblical history, and thus it needed to say something about it, it also means that abortion was not a problem for God's people throughout biblical history because they weren't practicing it, which may explain the scripture's silence on it. Now, we can go farther than that, piecing together what the scripture records. Um, we can say human beings have value because of their intrinsic worth by virtue of being made in the image of God, which is why the shedding of innocent blood is forbidden. Genesis 1, Genesis 9, Exodus 23, etc. I think we can also conclude that children were seldom unwanted or viewed as an annoyance but as gifts from God, Genesis 17, Genesis 33, Psalm 113, Psalm 127. Additionally, having descendants in the biblical time was a virtue. It was an ideal that God's people valued. N.T. Wright suggests that perpetuating one's family line was a sacred responsibility continuance of it was not just a matter of keeping the family name alive, but it was part of the way God's promises for Israel and through Israel, the whole world would be fulfilled. So it shouldn't surprise us then that things like barrenness and sterility were viewed as a curse, a source of great shame and sorrow. A Germain Grisedge sums it up nicely writes, among a Hebrew people who saw children as a gift and barrenness as a curse, it was virtually unthinkable that any woman from that culture would desire an abortion. Michael Gorman has uh, compiled material um, from f- the first century Jewish uh, literature that, that talks about how people of that time were thinking about these things. Um. The sentences of pseudo-facilities, uh, f- written somewhere between 50 BC and 50 AD, writes this, A woman should not destroy the unborn babe in her belly, nor after its birth throw it before the dogs and vultures. The Sibylline oracles include among the wicked those who produce abortions, and unlawfully cast their offspring away. And it also condemned um, sorcerers who dispense abortifacients. First Enoch, written about the first or second century BC, says that an evil angel taught humans how to smash the embryo in the womb. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian, wrote this, the law orders all the offspring be brought up, and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with the fetus. A woman who did so was considered to have committed infanticide because she destroyed a soul and hence diminished the race. So you've got this first century Jewish mindset towards abortion that's clearly opposed to it. That stands in opposition to how Roman culture viewed it. Roman culture sanctioned abortion. You've got Cicero, records that according to the 12 tables of Roman law, deformed infants shall be killed. Plutarch spoke of those who said, um, 
offered up their own children, and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were so many lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a tear or moan. Um, early Christian literature uh, condemned abortion uh, against the backdrop of this bleak Roman culture. The Hebrew sanctity of human life ethic provided the moral framework for early Christian condemnation of abortion and infanticide. For instance, in the Didache, which was written between 85 and 110 AD, commands, quote, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. Another non-canonical early Christian text, the letter of Barnabas, written in about 130 AD, said, you shall not abort a child, nor again commit infanticide. Added to all this are specific texts. Um, we could start with uh, Exodus twenty one twenty two. In that passage, it explicitly calls the unborn a child. So the Hebrew word used to describe a four-year-old is the same word used to describe an unborn child. Psalm 139 tells us God creates the unborn just as he created Adam and Eve. Imagine watching a, a, a sculptor working to shape an elaborate figure out of stone. And while she's engaged in this great feat, someone comes along, picks it up and smashes it against the floor. Would anyone be outraged? We're dealing in that instance with stone, with abortion. We're dealing with life. In the womb, God is in the middle of forming, of forming and developing this life. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now notice God is addressing Jeremiah as though he is a person through the use of personal pronouns. You, I formed you, you in the womb. I knew you before you were born. I consecrated you. So on balance, at the very least, we can say there is no support for the practice of abortion in the Bible. But I think the evidence is stronger than that. The Bible forbids it. Now, how do we defend this, though, to to the world? What about those who reject the Bible as an authoritative source? Before I I insert kind of a a biblio-philosophical approach within this, I want to return to the question I mentioned at the start. What is the unborn? Scott Klusendorf focuses the conversation on this by creating a fictitious but realistic conversation between two people over the issue of abortion in the instance of rape. It's a conversation that happens between Pam and Emily. Here's how it goes. Pam says, but what about a woman who's been raped? Every time she looks at that kid, she's going to remember what happened to her. If that's not hardship, what is? And Emily responds saying, I agree that we should provide compassionate care for the victim and it should be the best care possible. That's not, that's not an issue here. It's your proposed solution I'm struggling to understand. Tell me, how should a civil society treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? 
Is it okay to kill them so we can feel better? Can we, for example, kill a toddler who reminds her mother of a rape? Pam responds, no, I wouldn't do that. And Emily says, I wouldn't either. But again, isn't that because you and I both agree that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, even if they do remind us of a painful event? And Pam says, but you don't understand how much this woman has suffered. Put yourself in her shoes. How would you feel? And Emily says, you're right. I don't understand her feelings. How could I? How could anyone? I'm just asking if hardship justifies homicide. Can we, for instance, kill toddlers who remind us of painful events? Again, my claim here is really quite modest. If the, if the unborn are members of the human family, like toddlers, we should not kill them to make someone else feel better. It's better to suffer evil rather than to inflict it. Personally, I wish I could give a different answer, but I can't without trashing the principle that my right to life shouldn't depend on how others feel about me. In the end, sometimes the right thing to do is not the easy thing to do. And what's right depends on the question, what is the unborn? We can't get around it. Now, again, Klusendorf, like so many others, is focusing on the exact right question. What is the unborn? Personally speaking, this is Brian Danesberg talking, the reason I oppose abortion is a very simple one. It's because I believe the unborn are part of the human family. Unless it can be clearly established, the unborn are not human. The issue of abortion shouldn't be complicated. It's clear cut. It may be emotional, it may be controversial, but it's not complicated. Let me come at this from a slightly different angle. There, there are numerous pro-choice advocates who will say, even though the law should protect a woman's right to elective abortion, we should do all we can to limit them as much as possible. I have never understood that. This idea that the law should protect a woman's right to elective abortion Coexisting with, we should do all we can to limit them as much as possible. That just seems to me to be a self-defeating statement. It, it seems to be untenable to me for this reason. If the unborn are not part of the human family, it would seem to me having an elective abortion requires no more justification than having a tooth pulled. Who cares? Why try to limit it? Now, to get around this, some pro-choice advocates will say the unborn are human, but not persons. They separate humanness from personhood. Now, (laughs) this is is important. Um, This is why you've got to go back to the Bible. Does the Bible back that up? And obviously not. The, The The Bible doesn't split human beings into categories of persons and non-persons. In fact, as I listen to that, it it sounds eerily similar to something in our nation's past that continues to haunt us to this day. Abortion choice advocate Marianne Warren takes this approach of dividing humans into two groups, persons and non-persons. A person, she asserts, is a living entity with feelings, self-awareness, 
consciousness and the ability to interact with his or her environment. Because a fetus has none of these capabilities, it cannot be a person with rights. Well, how would you address that? How would you respond to that? Stephen Schwartz uh, helpfully outlines an acrostic. The acrostic is SLED, S-L-E-D, that I think is a helpful tool in, in engaging this um, engaging this, uh, this approach to our humanity. Um, it goes like this. SLED, S, size. Yes, embryos are smaller than newborns and adults. But why is that relevant? Do we really want to say that large people are more human than small ones? Men are generally larger than women, but that doesn't mean they deserve more rights. Size doesn't equal value. L, level of development. True, embryos and fetuses are less developed than you and I. But again, why is this relevant? Four-year-old girls are less developed than 14-year-old ones. Should older children have more rights than their younger siblings? Some people say that self-awareness makes one human. But if that is true, newborns do not qualify as valuable human beings. Remember, six-week-old infants lack the immediate capacity for performing human mental functions, as do the reversibly comatose, the sleeping, and those with Alzheimer's disease. E. Environment. Where you are has no bearing on who you are. Does your value change when you cross the street or roll over in bed? If not, how can a journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly change the essential nature of the unborn from non-human to human. If the unborn are not already human, merely changing their location can't make them valuable. D. Degree of dependency. If viability makes us valuable human beings, then all those who depend on insulin or kidney medication are not valuable and we may kill them. Conjoined twins who share blood type and bodily systems also have no right to life. See, humans, humans have value because they are human, not because of some characteristic they may acquire or lose during their lifetime. Again, Scott Klusendorf illustrates this. He says, suppose you're in a terrible motorcycle accident that leaves you comatose for two years. During that time, you lack the immediate exercisable capacity for self-awareness and have no sense of yourself existing over time. Are you the same person even though your functional abilities have changed? Imagine further when the two years are up, you emerge from the coma with no memory of your past life. Your wife and kids are strangers. You touch the hot stove and get burned. You must relearn everything from speaking to eating to working with your hands. In many ways, you are much like the standard fetus. You possess a basic capacity for self-awareness, rational thought, and language, but lack the immediate capacity to exercise these things. Like the fetus, all of your life experience and memories will be new. Through all of these changes, would you still be you? Could doctors have justifiably killed you during your extended sleep because you couldn't immediately exercise your capacity for self-awareness or sentience? If your right to life is based on your current functional abilities, rather than our common human nature, it's difficult to say why it would be wrong to kill you while you are comatose. Yet clearly, it would be morally wrong to kill you in that state. 
And the substance view can explain why. You never stopped being you through all of these changes because you have a human nature that grounds your identity through time and change. So in short, humans are equal by nature, not function. Humans have value simply because they are human, not because of some acquired property that they may gain or lose during their lifetime. If you deny this, it's difficult to account for fundamental human equality for anyone. These are some good things to be thinking about because I I think um, at the very least, it may not convince those who are on the pro-choice side of things, but it it has the potential to put a rock in their shoe, to give them some things, some things to think about that uh, maybe they've not considered before. Now, in conclusion, I want to say a brief word about women who have had an unexpected pregnancy due to rape. You might know someone who's been in that spot. Listen, our response as Christians needs to be one of compassion and grief. Um, God can do a lot of soul soothing through a listening ear and the ministry of prayer. Don't just jump in to your apologetic uh, defending the pro-life position. There's a ministry side to this. There's a soul side to this. There's a heart side to this that has to be considered as you, as you interact with someone who's gone through this horrible experience. And to those who have had an abortion, it's important to realize it's usually accompanied by tremendous guilt and and emotional pain that they carry with them. As Christians, we cannot forget that our righteousness before God is not our own. It's Christ's righteousness, all of it. Through the cross, there is forgiveness and cleansing. So, So whatever the X's and O's may be in the sanctity of life, abortion debate, we cannot forget to minister to the soul of the individual who is caught up in the middle of living it. I leave you with these words from the psalmist. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Thanks for joining us today.